Well, all right, open your Bibles to Exodus. We're in a series called Exodus on the Move. We're in a mini-series called the Ten Commandments. We're in a mini-mini-series that I never saw coming uh, called Sex Through a Biblical Lens. And we're on the third and final message uh, on commandment number seven. So I want to encourage you and challenge you to be here next week. We're going to do commandment number eight. And eight's a great one too. And it's powerful stuff. It'll help you. It'll help us live honoring God. And so we're learning the Ten Commandments. But before we get into the Ten Commandments, I brought this cup out. I need to put a disclaimer. Uh, I never even thought about it, but I had people looking at me. And I said, what are they looking at? They said, it looks like you're drinking beer standing out in front of the church. For the record, I don't drink beer. I don't drink alcohol. I highly encourage everybody I know uh, to not drink beer or alcohol. I just don't think it makes you the best person you can be. And uh, number two, if, we were, if, we, if, we, if, we, if I was drinking beer at 10 in the morning, I got a problem. And number three, if we were serving free beer, you wouldn't have a seat unless you got here early, okay? So just for the record, this is uh, something from Phoenix Roasters. It's legit. It's like lemon tea coffee. It's really good stuff. It kind of gets you jacked up. It, 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 I like it, okay? So if you've got a problem with that, come see me afterwards, and I'll tell you, go see Robbie. Now, uh, we're in Ten Commandments. We're learning the Ten Commandments. Number one, one God only. Number two, two is too many. Don't bow to any other God. Number three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Watch what you say about them. Number four, two on each finger, lowercase r, remember your rest, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Number five, salute, honor your father and your mother. Number six, thou shalt not murder. Number seven, which is where we are at, marriage and sex go together. Sex is for a man and a woman who are married and not all this other stuff, all right? That's the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in that simple passage it is power packed and it opens up just a whole litany of things that we need to know and understand and that's what we've been unpacking for the last few weeks and that's what we're going to finish up on today now I never saw a mini series in a mini series in a series coming but I am 100% convinced that it is God's will that we talk about this subject matter for three weeks because that's the messages God has given me and also because as a culture, as a world, we are failing miserably when it comes to understanding and living according to God's mandates and God's beautiful design for sexuality. And if you agree that we live in a confused culture, say amen. Well, the Bible's very clear about it. We've seen it over the last couple of weeks that God opens his Bible, his word, when he begins to speak to us in Genesis chapter two, and he tells us about sexuality. And he marries the first man and the first woman. And he designed sex and he made it for procreation and he made it for pleasure and he made it to seal the, the, the covenant between a man and a woman in marriage. It's beautiful. And, he, and he, he initiates it. He tells us about it. He doesn't hide from it. He talks about it. He speaks into it in Genesis 2. And then we saw the other book in Revelation, the next to the last chapter. God weighs in again and he says, I am serious about immorality. I am serious about what my design is and the rule book that I've given regarding sexuality in your life, all right? And then all in between Genesis and Revelation, he never hides from it. He never backs up. He never stammers or stutters. He's very, very clear about this. Any sexual activity between two people outside of one man and one woman being married is a sin. It really is that simple. But boy, we don't like it simple. Because when, when, when things are simple, it seems to back us into a corner, if you will, and, 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 and prevent us from enjoying what the world says is beautiful. And that leaves us in a dilemma, a place, a crossroads of decision-making where we get to decide. You personally get to decide. I personally get to decide. Will I take on and live by a biblical worldview or will I have a secular worldview? You can't have both. You can't meet in the middle with some marginal idea. Well, I'm gonna take some biblical things and I'm gonna take some world things and I'm gonna satisfy God. That's a lie from the devil. Can't do it. So we have to tether ourselves to the truth of God's word. And God's word is very clear about his expectations regarding it. So the series is called Sex Through a Biblical Lens. On the back of your life guide, this is part three, the commandment number seven. Here it is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, five words, you shall not commit adultery. 
But just like all of the other commandments so far, and just like the commandments to the very end, to number 10, Jesus just won't leave it alone. Jesus won't let it be simple like, okay, I haven't committed adultery. I'm married. I haven't slept with another woman. I'm married. I haven't slept with another man. I'm okay with this. Jesus doesn't leave it alone. You see, the 10 commandments we're learning, they're just given as a baseline. They're great. If you have nothing else, you can live according to the 10 commandments and you can honor God. But Jesus said, I'm going to dive in deeper. I'm going to unpack what these mean. And I want you to understand the Ten Commandments are not given to make you think how good you are at obeying commandments. The Ten Commandments are given to help you understand how badly you are in need of an outside rescuer to come in and to forgive your sins. Because we're all sinful. It's just the way it is. And so that's what he does. Now in Matthew 5, 28, it's one example. Jesus says about this sin of adultery. I don't even like this verse. He says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Heart adultery. You got to hate that one. Yeah. Oh, listen to y'all self-righteous. I ain't never done that. You bunch of liars. Men, I know you're lying. Women, maybe you do a little better than us because men are, men are uh, moved by the eye gate, by what comes through their eyes. We're, we're, we're visually stimulated, okay? And if you're not, you need to see a doctor because you ain't wired right, okay? It's a man thing, okay? And so we, we, I, I don't like that, but it's the reality of it. So we begin to understand that we're, we're just kind of guilty a lot, that we we really need a gracious Jesus to come into our world and radically change us and to forgive us and to help us live a new life. And so we're, gonna gain, we're gaining this fresh biblical perspective about sex and why it's such a challenge because what Scripture says and what the world says are entirely different. The world is just chock full of options, alternatives, and ideas. Meanwhile, God says, nope. One man, one woman, sex is good. Outside of that, if they're married, outside of that, it's not good. It's a sin. And so we we begin to say, well, how are we supposed to live? Well, that's what we're talking about today. So, so far, we've defined biblical sex. We've debunked the lies. We've developed a biblical view. And we finished last time. And by the way, Clark covered for me last time. Uh, Help me show some love for Clark for covering for me. He does a great job. I never worry about him preparing and, 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 and preaching for me. I never worry about him dropping a sermonette of 15 minutes and then you all expect that from me. You know, so, uh, so he, I'm a big fan. And so anyway, now we, before I, I left to go on vacation, we talked about deploying a new strategy. Deploying a new strategy. And, and, and A, the first strategy we talked about, was, was it was to admit the old strategy had failed. Just admit that the old strategy, it's not working. And we don't have to look far to see that. We can look in the mirror and see it. We can look in the world and see that we're, we're messing this thing up. The way we're doing it is not right. Now, the old strategy is, is that we won't take ownership, that we are all products of our environment, that we are who we are. And if we listen to that voice long enough, well, you're products of your environment. That's a lie. That is a lie. And you want to know why? Because Adam and Eve lived in a perfect environment, a brand new creation whispered by God out of nothing at all into everything we know. And it was perfect. And God said of his own work, he bragged on his face, man, that's good. Man, that's good. That's really good. I mean, he knew it was good. Adam and Eve were placed in it and they fail. We're not products of our environment. Listen to me. We are products of the decisions we make in the environment we live in. And we need to know that because right now in the world, probably more than ever before, we want to blame somebody else. And if we listen to those voices long enough, it sounds like the culture we live in today that says this, you know what? I was born this way. You know what? God made me this way. You know what? I'm only happy if I am this way. So I'm going to be this way. And you can believe that. You can embrace that. You can wave a flag and a banner and support that. But at the end of that, you'll know the truth, and the truth is not what you believed. What you believed has been a lie because everything outside the truth of God's word, which is always true, is a lie. And it's not spoken from the God of creation. It's spoken from the lowercase g God of this world, Satan himself. And when he speaks, scripture says, he speaks a lie. He cannot tell the truth. He's the father of lies. And 
people choose to believe that lie. Now, they choose to yield to the power of their own sinful nature rather than the power of God over sin, and that's the wrong strategy. So what happens, the new strategy begins when we stop blaming God. Now, I'm not gonna tell you everything we talked about in James. He says, listen, sin in your life and temptation in your life, it's an inside job. It comes from your own passions and your own desires when you're deceived and, and lured in uh, to, to, to do them. And we talked about temptation is not a sin. If you're tempted by sin, listen, if there's somebody, maybe they have a, a, a sexual uh, orientation confusion problem, they're a guy, they think they're supposed to be a girl, they're a girl, they think they're supposed to be a guy. Listen, to think that, they just need to get some, some evaluation and some counseling for that, okay? It's one thing to be tempted by that. It's one thing to be, for a man to be tempted by a woman. It's one thing for a woman to be tempted by a man. But it's another thing to yield to that. Temptation is not a sin. When we agree with the temptation, when we dive into the temptation and, and there's an act that follows, then it becomes sin. Jesus was tempted on the mountain uh, when, he let, when he was baptized. Scripture says he was led by the Spirit straightway to go to the wilderness to be tempted of the devil straight face to face with the devil tempted in all the categories of sin that you and I face and Jesus nailed them all he just obliterated the enemy and I think it's kind of fun to know because it helps us we don't have to come up with an idea of how to fight the enemy all we have to know is know the truth which is this book and that's what Jesus did Jesus defeated all of temptation by Satan himself by quoting Deuteronomy so the next time you're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you get to Deuteronomy and your eyes are rolling up in your head, pay attention, okay? Because you can use those words to fight the enemy. Now, that is, that is what it looks like when we admit the old strategy is not working. Now let's look at the second one, the second strategy for being successful. The second strategy is the letter B, build a better circle of influence. Build a better circle of influence in your life. The people you listen to, the people you roll with, the people you run with, the people you hang out with, the people that you listen to, build a better circle of influence. If you're watching CNN, that's not a good circle of influence. If you're watching a lot of Fox News, that's not a good circle of influence. If you're listening to people who do not align themselves with the truth of God's word, that's not a circle of influence that will help you live a godly life sexually uh, in this world. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says this, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Did you hear it? Bad company corrupts good morals. Sober up as you should, stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. In our culture, you've heard people say, well, if you're gonna run with dogs, you're gonna get fleas. Let me just tell you something. If you're gonna sleep with somebody who has slept with somebody who has slept with other people, fleas are the least of your worries, okay? A little powder ain't gonna help this problem. A collar is not gonna knock out what you're getting, okay? So we need to change uh, and build a better circle of influence. We need to stop listening to the lies of the people who either don't know the truth and the standard of God's word, or they reject the idea that they should subscribe or live according to the standard of God's word. So we have to build a new circle of influence. Now, letter C, the third one, change your accountability system. Okay, change your accountability system. We're all accountable to somebody. I, I'm married to Kendra, I'm accountable to her. I'm the father of two daughters, I'm accountable to them. I have grandchildren, I have a son-in-law, I'm accountable to them. I'm, as pastor, I'm accountable to this church. We're accountable, but we need to, we need to understand there's a bigger accountability at play right here. And, and so to do that, we can go way back in time in God's word and we, and we can find one of the most amazing biblical characters in all of God's word, his name was Joseph. And that, now Joseph was loved by his dad so much that his brothers hated him because they were jealous. And in fairness, it, his dad didn't treat him right because of the jealousy. So he gives Joseph this, this groovy coat of many colors and his brothers are hating on him. So they just took him out and sold him into slavery. That's how you do your brother when you're unhappy with him. You just sell him into a foreign country as a slave. And that's what they did. Now, if, if, if anybody has a reason to shake their fist at God and say, I don't like what the, 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 the storyline that you've written me in. If anybody has the right to say, I don't like the circumstances of my life. I don't, this is unfair, God. If anybody has the right, it would be Joseph. 
I mean, he's away from his family, the father who loved him. He's a slave in Egypt. Now, this slave comes into Egypt, and, and, and because God has his hand on him, because God has his hand on people who live for him, and he provides blessing. So while there, Potiphar, who is a captain of the guards, he's a high, he's a high up in Egypt, maybe like a prime minister or an executive leadership position. He sees Joseph and he likes him. And he brings him into his house and he makes him steward over all of his possessions. You see, Joseph pushed back on the world system. Joseph said, you know what? Whether I'm living at home with dad and my stupid brothers or whether I'm a slave for Pharaoh and Potiphar in Egypt, I'm still living for God. That's a good standard to live by. No matter where we're at, no matter what day it is, no matter what our circle of life looks like in the moment, we still live for God. We just stand up strong, bold, be proud, live for God. And that's what Joseph did. Now that leads us to Genesis 39. In verse six, it says, now Joseph was well-built and good-looking. I don't really know what that feels like, okay? But that's what it says about him, okay? And because of that, and because Potiphar thought he was a legitimate guy, Verse seven, soon after these things, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now there's a pickup line. Okay, not can I buy you a drink? Can I get your number? Okay, come to bed with me, all right? Now, verse eight, but he refused. Uh, listen to the response to the temptation. But he refused, that's the answer. You know, I think it was, I think it was Ronald Reagan's wife said, just say no, all right? That's what Joseph said, just no, I'm not gonna do that. You know, let me, okay, let me think about that for a second. No, let me pray about it. No, not gonna do it. So he goes, he refused saying to his master's wife, look, my master does not give any thought to his household with me here. And everything that he owns, he has put into my care. So he's surveying the vastness of his life. He's not looking at this isolated temptation, probably a beautiful woman seducing him, wanting to give herself to him. He's not looking at that. He's looking at the bigger picture. And he says, you know what? I, see, I, I hear what you're inviting me to. I know what that's like. But the bigger picture says, I've been blessed by God and your husband doesn't worry about anything he owns as long as I'm here. Now, I want you to also notice where the where the battle begins to defeat temptation. He doesn't say, well, let's talk about this. Well, I don't know you that well, Miss Potiphar, so let's sit down and, and, and have a conversation. You know, we, we can fool around, but we're not gonna go all the way. There's no gray area. There's no margin for error. He just says on the front end, there's a temptation, and I refuse to do that. Wow, is that not incredible? What if every time we had an opportunity to sin, we just said, Whoa, that's a temptation. I'm not gonna do it. Let me give you an example, one in my life. This isn't sexual, but we, were, we, were, we, went, on, we went on vacation last week, and uh, that's why Clark, Park, uh, Clark preached for me, and uh, that's why most of y'all came back, because you thought he's gonna preach again, and the joke's on you. So anyway, uh, we were on the way back on the interstate with, when I stopped counting, I think it was a billion and 12 people on the interstate. And I'm convinced that a lot of those people who were on the interstate got finished their vacation, and it's the first time in their whole life they ever sat behind the steering wheel of a car. They're in the fast lane doing 50, and apparently they've ripped, they've ripped off any form of view of what's behind them because there's 50 cars, including me, doing 50 in the fast lane, and that person should go to jail. Now, if you can't tell, if you can't tell, that's a temptation for me. I mean, I wanna go through the grass. I would consider making a U-turn just driving the other direction. I would get out and walk, but I'm miserable like that. Okay, so, so it's in those moments. It's in those moments that the Holy Spirit or your wife says, Joel, says, Joel, it's really not that big a deal. We're gonna make it to our destination and maybe the Lord, and maybe the Lord is slowing us down to help us avoid a traffic accident in the future to which I wanna say, why don't you get out and ride with the person in front of me? <laughs> and so we have to learn every temptation comes and it's in that moment that we refuse to engage with it. We, 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 we refuse to take it to the next level. Verse nine, it goes on, okay? Now I want you to know something. When you refuse the enemy's temptation 
And the temptation we talked about comes from within. But when, when, when he paints a picture to invite you into that desire that's within you, okay, just because you refuse well the first time doesn't mean it goes away. Temptations are always coming in our direction. But I will say this, the more we learn to refuse, the stronger we become, the easier it becomes to refuse in those areas, okay? After we build up a tolerance to those, then the enemy will, will refashion his opportunities for you. But we begin to learn how to be strong. Verse 9 says, there is, Joseph continues with Potiphar's wife. He says, there's no one greater in this household than I am. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. And then he says this, the accountability of Joseph. Why is he so strong? Because he understands who he's accountable to. He says this, he says, so how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? You see, our sin, his sin wasn't against Potiphar. His sin would not have been against Potiphar's wife. His sin would not have been, been against his father or his, his homeland or his people. His sin would be against God. I want you to know this today. Every sin you and I commit, every time we miss the mark, we don't hit the target, which is what sin is, the target of God's standard. It is a sin, a direct violation against God Almighty the creator and sustainer of the world, the one who wrapped himself in flesh and came to this earth and died on a cross. That's why Jesus came to this earth to die because God had to pay the penalty for our sin because our sin is a sin against God. Now, when we begin to make our decisions based on what God really thinks about it, it kind of changes things. It kind of convicts us at a different level. Now, verse 10 says, even though she continued to speak to Joseph day after day, she, that was a beautiful little spill, Joseph, but you still a hot tamale, and I'm coming for you tomorrow, okay? He says, and even though she continued to speak to Joseph day after day, he did not respond to her invitation to go to bed with her. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to do his work when none of the household servants were there in the house. I've been paused right there. Rule number one, do not let yourself get in this situation. Billy Graham, when he traveled to, to speak uh, these crusades around the world, he traveled with a team of security. And one of the responsibilities was if he was staying in the Hilton, say, and his room was, you know, 806 his security team would go into room 806 before he ever went in there. They would look under the bed, behind the curtains, in the shower, everywhere you could hide because he would not allow himself to be um, caught in a compromising situation. Why? Because he knew he was accountable to God. Verse 12, she grabbed him by his outer garment saying, come to bed with me. But he left his outer garment in her hand and he ran outside. Joseph's willingness and committedness to hold himself accountable to God would land him not in the penthouse, but in the prison. He went to prison. Now we know he was there for two, possibly up to 12 years, because there's 17 years between the time that, that he begins to interpret dreams and he's released and the time that he's sold into slavery. He could have been in prison up to 12 years. We know at least two, okay? Why? Because he held himself accountable to God. I want you to know something. Living according to God's standard will not always look like a blessing in this world, but the blessing is going to come because God will always honor those who live according to this standard. He may not, it may not look like the world, the way the world rewards people, but it's a better reward and, it's a, and, it, and it reaps eternal rewards. Our accountability is to God. Listen to this, Romans 14, therefore, each of us will give an account of himself to God. We all stand before God one day. Now, we're, those of us who are believers, it's, it's, uh, it's the Bema Seat of Mercy. We stand before Judge Jesus, okay, and we give an account. Now, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, past, present, future sins, but we still give an answer for our life. And, and quite honestly, there's parts of my life that I, I look forward to saying, yeah, we did that. You empowered me and you called me and we did that. And there's other parts that can, can we go to the next chapter? Can I leave that part out? I really, I really don't want to give an account for that. And so Proverbs chapter 5 weighs in in verse 18. It says this, so be happy with your wife. and Find your joy with the woman you married, pretty and graceful as a deer. Let her charms keep you happy and let her surround you with her love. Son, why should you give your love to another woman? Why should you prefer the charms of another man's wife? Listen, here's why. 
the Lord sees everything you do. Wherever you go, he is watching. I don't even like that most of the time. I like if I'm in trouble, if I find myself in a, in a bad part of town, if I find myself with a sickness, I like the fact that he's watching. I like the, the fact that wherever I go, he is watching. But there's other parts of my life that I really would rather him turn the camera off. Amen? Me and three others. A bunch, next week, week after next, we'll be lying. Okay. Psalm chapter 51 verse 1 says, David talked about accountability. David had committed these sins, right? He, he lusted, had heart lust after Bathsheba. And then he tells his commander, she's fine. Go get her, bring her in. He has sex with her. She gets pregnant. Game's not over. He murders her husband. I mean, he just, it, it just turns into a cesspool of sin, which is the nature of compound sin. It starts one place and takes you someplace you never intended to go. But at the end of it, Nathan confronts him. And this is what David says. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Because of your loyal love, because of your great compassion, wipe away my rebellious acts. Wash away my wrongdoing. Cleanse me of my sin. For I am aware of my rebellious acts. I am forever conscious of my sin. And this is what he said. It is against you, you above all God, that I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You see, David came to a place where he remembered his sin was not just against Uriah and Bathsheba and the nation of Israel. It was against God. It's a much greater accountability structure. So we need to recalibrate our accountability system as a strategy for being successfully in regards to God honoring sex. D, number four, develop a proactive posture. Develop a proactive posture. Now, in the world, it's, we, we live in a sexual buffet. Whatever your flavor is, whatever you like, it's all good. We got it right here at the table. And, and so we have a very natural sex drive that God put in us. It's very natural. But we live in a world that takes that natural desire and that natural drive and that natural inclination of our heart, and it wants to uh, distort it. It wants to confuse it. It wants to create a, a, make a mess out of it. And, we, and it's all false information. You see, we've got to learn to develop a pro, proactive posture, to put ourselves in places where we're success, successful and not failures. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 tells us that it begins right here in our mind. It says this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Isn't that cool? And it means no matter what comes into our mind, we, we run it through this filter that looks like the standard of God's word. And, and we just have this conversation with ourselves and with God. I hear what the world is saying. I'm running it through the filter of truth. And on the other side, this is how I will respond. But rather than doing that, we have these thoughts that come into our mind. And, they, and it's like the little hamster on the wheel, man. He starts out and he's doing this. And next thing you know, you know, I mean, he's tearing it up. Okay, the wheel's coming off the hinges and it's just going. Meanwhile, scripture says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Make it conform to the image of Christ, which is God's goal for your whole life. And when I was doing students years ago, there's a book called Every Young Man's Battle. And it was a battle about sexual purity. And in there, he had an incredible line. He says this simply, he says, there is a natural desire, a beast in all of us. The key is don't feed the beast. In other words, the beast is going to be fine without any external stimuli. Don't just feed the beast. Don't just saturate yourself with the wrong music. Don't just saturate yourself <clears throat> with the wrong movies. Don't saturate, saturate yourself with the wrong images on the internet. Don't saturate yourself with the wrong images in magazines. And then we ask ourselves a question. Well, what am I supposed to do? Live in a cave because it's everywhere. And you know it's everywhere. You listen to your music and listen, I, I, I like me, I don't, I'm not a big fan of rap. I mean, I might be if I knew what they were saying, but I don't. 
I'm not a big fan of hip-hop just because of the videos, you know. They're doing some hipping and hopping, okay. I, I, I kind of like country music, but about, best I can tell, probably three-fourths of it is about alcohol and sex and stuff that I don't, I shouldn't have in my life, so I really don't need to be feeding the beast with that garbage. And I, and I like old rock music, you know. I like 60s and 70s rock music, okay. When I was listening to it as a freshman in high school, I heard one story. And now when I listen back, I get the rest of the story. It's saturated with that too. So we don't need to feed the beast. You turn on the television. It's in the movies. You notice that when you watch something on television, you could probably count on one hand if you can remember any situations where a man and a woman are married and they're engaged in some level of sexual activity and it's painted and portrayed as something positive. It's not what it is. The, the media saturates the world with everything in between Genesis and Revelation. All of those uh, ungodly forms of sexuality, that's what you see in media, and it's everywhere. You can't watch anything without seeing it. And it doesn't matter, even if you watch sports, if you watch the Super Bowl, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the Super Bowl. You know, a bunch of half-naked women get in the back of a pickup truck to get, excuse me, a toothless old bearded hillbilly gets a 12-pack of beer. Next thing you know, the back of his pickup truck's loaded with half-naked uh, women. What does it make you want to do? <laughs> I went and bought a 12-pack. I mean, I mean that's, what people, that's what people think, right? Or what about this one, women's wrestling? Has anybody watched women's wrestling? I was waiting for a guy, yeah. <laughs> if you have it, you've paused on it. You may not watch it, but you paused. You're thumbing through there, and you're like, seriously? I mean... Two women fighting, wearing dental floss. Man, I could watch this. I could be a fan, you know. So, so it's everywhere we go. It's this buffet. Meanwhile, Scripture says, take every thought captive and make it conform to the image of Christ. Job, one of the oldest characters in the Bible, one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job weighs in on this. Now listen, this is a big, this is not new. This is not a 2023 problem. This has been a problem since the fall of mankind, okay? Job, the oldest book in the Bible, 31 verse 1, this is what he says, I made a covenant with my eyes. He goes on in that chapter, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes because I know, I know how this thing ends up. I know what God wants for my life and that's not it. I know at the end of it, we all give an account for who we are and how we live our lives. So I'm going to make a covenant, a pact with my eyes. When something comes before my eyes, I'm going to uh, deliberately choose not to let that go through my eyes, into my mind, into my heart and come out as a perverted idea of what God's plan is for my life. So we've got to establish boundaries for our life, boundaries with our eyes Boundaries for our ears, boundaries for our hands and feet, boundaries for our whole body. Now, Paul suggests a couple of really good, tangible, uh, uh, um, easy things to do to posture ourselves for success. First of all, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, just stay away from every form of evil. One passage says, uh, just flee from the appearance of evil. If it looks like evil... <laughs> It's evil. If it barks like a dog, wags its tail like a dog, poops in your yard like a dog, guess what? Could be a dog. And that's what he says, just if it looks like evil, just don't play stupid. Don't stand there while the enemy plays, uh, plays games with your life. And then he goes on in verse 23 of that same passage. He says, and may the God of peace himself make you completely holy and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, listen, there's a bigger thing at play here. Jesus, the one who came and died on a cross, one day he's coming back for those that he has redeemed and when he shows up, you don't wanna, you don't wanna be looking like that mess that the devil wants you to look like. You wanna be found holy and pure and blameless. That's how you want to be found when he returns. And, and okay, so now if you, if you push back and you try to avoid temptation, it just seems to keep coming, just like it did in the life of Joseph. What Joseph did when he ran out of that room is a biblical response. 
You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the immoral person sins against his own body. Listen, if you fought and you fought, you've tried to with, withstand it all you can, if you, get, if you got nothing else, run. It's okay, run. It's all right. Whatever you have to do to avoid temptation and sin, then that's what you do. So how can we help you with this? Because it's everywhere. I wanna introduce you to an idea that you could, you, it's an app that you could purchase and put on every device in your home. And I'm gonna say this, I was the first one to sign up, okay? It's, it's, it's not on there yet but because we just started the sign-up thing. It's called Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is an organization that provides apps for all of your devices, your phone, your tablet, your computer, any of that stuff. You ought to put it on there. You ought to put it on there to protect yourself Maybe you say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not addicted to pornography. I don't even look at pornography. Well, you need to put it on there in case your children or your grandchildren decide uh, that they want to use your device, okay? Or maybe you've struggled with pornography before, okay? You can put that on there. I, and, and it costs money. It's a good investment. It's such a good investment for me and for this church. I'm going to tell you this. If you say, you know what, I would like to have covenant eyes on my devices, but for 10 devices, it's going to cost me $9 a month or whatever the number is. I'm not even sure. I just, I just don't have $9 a month. You can, you can go online. You can go to your church center app. You can sign up for covenant eyes, and we'll provide it for free. And it's discreet. Nobody will know that you signed up for it. And maybe that's the reason you do it uh, through the church. Because you don't want anybody to think you got a problem. Listen, I got a problem. I'm tempted. I don't want that junk. I don't want to watch that stuff. I, I don't have a problem. I'm not looking at pornography. But I got a problem. I got flesh. And whatever I can do to posture myself to be holy and pure and blameless for the coming of Jesus, I need to do that. And covenant eyes will protect you. And covenant eyes will pr protect your devices. And covenant eyes will protect your children, and your grandchildren. And we need to consider it. Just prayerfully consider it. Now, that's four, A, B, C, and D, of our strategies. Now, they're all kind of negative, man. It's a lot of work. The fifth one, letter E, is this. Ready? Enjoy God's design for biblical sex. Biblical sex is designed by God to be enjoyable. Just the way it is. And when God designs something for for pain, it's, it's real. And when God designs something for joy, it's amazing. And when God de designs something for redemption and salvation, off the charts. And when God designs something for pleasure, you better believe it's amazing. And so it is amazing in the context that God has created it for. And so in our culture, it promotes every form of illicit idea but it doesn't promote biblical sex. And the vast majority of the encounters are not biblical. So what is biblical? What is the biblical uh, recommendation or requirement for sex? It's for a man and a woman who are married to have sex as often as they want to, and it's good. It is that simple. God designed, he tells us, he designed sex for pleasure, procreation, and to seal the covenant relationship between a man and a woman who are married. Now, he told Adam and Eve, he said, uh, I want you to come together and become one sexually. I want you to procreate. I want you to have children. I want you to fill the earth with people. Now, what, would be, what better motivation would there be for filling the earth with children than to make it really pleasurable. I mean, if God would have said, so Adam and Eve, to have children, I want you to punch each other in the nose three times. We wouldn't, we wouldn't, there wouldn't be that many people here. But he didn't do it that way. He did it through the instrument and the mechanics of sexual relationships. And look around, we're a product of that. And it's real. And it's been here since creation of mankind. And it will be here until Jesus returns and recreates everything new because it's that good. Now, God designed it. The problem is we distort it. 
We start thinking things like, well, sexual relations between a husband and a wife becomes like a bartering tool, a bargaining chip. If you'll do this for me, I'll do this, do that for you. No, that's wrong. That's not in the Bible. Or we begin to uh, use it to penalize the other, our partner. That's not in the Bible. To deny each other because of one of an unmet need or, or something that we're unhappy with, that's a sin. We can't do that. But why? Because God knows, listen to me, God knows in this area when we deprive our husband or our wife in sexual relations, we open the door to the enemy to, to cause failure. And so what happens is sometimes we come up with these ideas like, well, I have these unmet needs and, uh, and so we're not, not going to come together sexually as a husband and a wife because I have an unmet need. Let me, let me tell you what, God, what Satan does. He loves when married people do that. He loves it because you know what he's the master of? You ready? Meeting unmet needs. He knows you got an unmet need. He knows it's inside of you. And so what he does, he says, all I got to do is, is create an environment to meet that need. And all of a sudden, the spouse who has deprived their spouse of, of meeting their sexual need that because of an unmet need, they're getting ready to experience a real unmet need. When the devil comes in and he wins a battle and the spouse has failed because they've gone to meet that need somewhere else, okay? So we have to be very, very careful. Well, listen to what Scripture says. You say, well, that's what the preacher thinks. I, I disagree. Fine. What does God say? His word says in 1 Corinthians 7, now with regard to the issues you wrote about, what I'm saying right here in 2023 is not new. Somebody wrote Paul a letter. He's like, hey, Paul, I got a question, man. Uh, my wife has had a headache for six weeks. And Paul says she needs to have an MRI. That's a tumor. Okay. No, he didn't say that. Somebody wrote a letter. Okay. So Paul's reading the letter. He says, yeah, this is a big deal. Let me answer this letter. So he says, regard to the issues you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of immoralities, each man should have relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband, and a husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. It is not the wife who has the rights to her own body, but the husband. In the same way, it is not the husband who has the rights to his own body, but the wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual agreement for a specified time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then resume your relationship so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. And somebody right now just thought, great, tonight I won't have a headache. I need to pray. Sorry, I've got to pray and I'm fasting from sex with you. That's not what it means. You're taking it way out of context, okay? It's saying a man and a woman who are married align themselves with the concept and the design of sexuality, and it should be a part of your life. And if you're struggling in that area, you should, you should get help with that. You should find out what the problem is. Maybe there's a old hurt in the past, whatever it is. Maybe there's a physical need. I don't know, but it's a part. It should be a part of your life. And so... And so we need to understand as we move forward that God speaks into the reality of sexuality. And so we have seen five strategies for you to live a pure life and a God-honoring life sexually. And the strategies are admit that the old strategy is failing, build a better circle, change your accountability, develop a posture for victory, enjoy God's design, and that leads us to our final point, point number five of sermon number three in many series called Sex Through a Biblical Lens. Here it is. Determined to find deliverance and healing from failures. Determined to find deliverance and healing from failures. In this mess we live in, and it is a mess. Kendra, were, Kendra and I were on a cruise uh, this last week. And no lie, at least half of the women on that cruise ship thought it was a good idea to wear dental floss out on the, on the ship. You know what I'm saying? And some of them, they needed a big dress is what they needed. There's no doubt they have not seen what other people were seeing. 
Because you could look around and the expression was. <laughs> and, and I said this in the early service. Kendra was in here. We spent most of our time hanging out on the back of the ship looking at the ocean. And I didn't realize why Kendra picked those chairs, but now I know why. There ain't no butts in the ocean. They're all up here. They're all up here, okay? It's everywhere. And so, I don't even know why I brought that up right now. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. So, God's goal is to provide deliverance and healing to our sexual problems. It's his goal. And his goal, his intention, is not some kind of behavior modification protocol so that we're soldiers acting better tomorrow. His intention is motivated from his deep abiding love for you and for me. A love so deep, a love so rich that he would leave the splendor of heaven and come to this earth and die brutally on a cross to help us, to heal us, and to deliver us. And his intention in giving us guidelines like the Ten Commandments and certainly like this one when it comes to sexuality is so that we can experience the fullness and the freedom of what his standard says sex should really be about. His goal is to have our heart. That's his goal. God's goal for you, God's goal for me is the same, to have our heart and to see our heart conformed not to the, to, to the standard of the world, but to see it conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful story in the Bible, and I'm a little short on time, but I've got to address it. John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching, people are following, I mean, he's doing his great, and out of it comes the devil. The devil, the devil dressed in religious clothes, and they drag this woman to Jesus where all these people are at. They said, Jesus, we caught this woman right here in the actual act of adultery. Scripture says we should stone her. Scripture says they're trying to trap Jesus. What do you say we do? It's one of the coolest stories. Jesus knelt down, and he took his finger, and he began to write things in the dirt doesn't say what he wrote and as he wrote in the dirt one by one from the oldest to the youngest they all dropped the rocks and they left and we don't know what he wrote I think he kind of probably wrote probably looked around and goes oh Jimmy tax evasion oh Steve drunkenness Larry mm, you like to gossip I think he's listing sins Joel you actually brought a rock over here to the party you know I think he, and they just, okay, my bad, I'm out. And he's standing there left with this woman caught in adultery. Jesus, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, and a woman who is caught in the sin of adultery all alone at this meeting. And Jesus looks at her and he said, woman, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? Verse 11, and she replied, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go from now on and don't sin anymore. That's what it looks like. On this day, in this place, you may have been involved in sexual immorality, heart adultery, physical adultery. I don't even know, don't wanna know on this day just like that woman caught in adultery, you can come to Jesus for forgiveness. And he'll say, I don't condemn you, but you have to go and sin no more. Maybe you're here and you have not committed the sin of adultery, but you have been hurt and damaged because of the sin, sexual sins in your life. Maybe uh, a, a relationship with somebody in your family. Maybe you were uh, hurt or abused growing up. May, whatever it is, any, form, any way you've been hurt, listen, you can come and be healed of that too. And, and, and Scripture says this about, our, about forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, 
beautiful verse. If we confess our sins, God, I get it. You're watching, you know it, I know it, I just confess it, I own it, it's mine. And it says, then he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 1.18 says, what does that look like? It says, though your sins have stained you like the color red, you can become white like snow. Though they are as easy to see as the color scarlet, you can become white like wool. And maybe if you're the person who has been offended or hurt, your deliverance, your healing is even harder than confessing. It comes through forgiveness. You see, Matthew, Jesus says this in chapter 6. He says, if you forgive others their sins, if you forgive other people for their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But listen, this is a hard verse. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's hard. So I stand before you today completing three messages about God's idea about sexuality. And the truth is, I've messed it up. I've failed in my life. And I don't want to do that. I want to be who God wants me to be moving forward. And I want the same for this church. And I want you to know this morning, we're going to sing a song here in just a second. And if you've been hurt or if you've been involved in sexual immorality, I want you to come to this altar. I'm going to give you another out. Maybe you know somebody who's hurting. I want you to come and pray for them. Why do I throw that in there? Because one week I preached a hard message about something. And Clark came forward and after the fact he thought, I guess they think I'm the only one that did that. So I want you to know, you can come to this altar. And if somebody judges you for coming to this altar, Jesus will judge them. You better believe he will. There's no judgment in here, no condemnation in here, okay? There's healing and opportunity for deliverance. And if you want to come forward, this altar is open. And maybe today you need to know this. You will never be free. You will never be delivered. You will never be forgiven unless you first have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that only happens when you volitionally and intentionally realize your sinfulness and you say, God, I admit it, I confess it, I'm a sinner. And I believe, God, that you sent Jesus to this earth and he died on a cross just for me. If there were no other people, it was just for me. I will take that grace gift into my life. Save me today, forgive me today, adopt me into your forever family today, and I'll live for you and make you the master of my life. Father, we thank you for this day, a terribly difficult to topic in the world we live in. But God, you're very clear. It's really not rocket science. Help us live according to your standard. Help us just, just live like you want us to, like you've given us instruction and stop listening to the wrong voices. God, I pray that the altar would be open for those who would like to come just to pray and to open the door of their heart for healing and deliverance and to take steps of stride moving forward to be more of who you would have us to be. And we will give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.